Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. We are going to talk about a hot-button issue on this show. Because of all kinds of media these days, and almost everyone with a smartphone also has a camera, we get to see the contradictory evidence with our own lying eyes that has often been refuted been refuting the stories told by law enforcement about what happened to the person of color who was just murdered or executed, however you want to couch it, for being black. I'm talking about the pandemic of law enforcers shooting mostly unarmed, mostly people of color. The Second Amendment is brought up in almost every political debate between a conservative and a liberal. My guest today, Carol Anderson, is the Charles Howard Candler Professor and Chair of African Studies at Emory University. She was on this show before for her book, One Person, No Vote. Her latest book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, she argues that the Second Amendment isn't about guns. It is about anti-blackness. I'll let her explain why. I am very happy once again to welcome Carol Anderson to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Carol. Hi, Bob. Uh, this is a really tough book in the sense that you describe so many terrible things that have happened to people of color. Uh, and I, don't want, I want to start us off with a quote that you have in your book. Why did you shoot him, sir? Asked by Diamond Reynolds, fiancé of Philandro Castile, who moments before was shot by a police officer. This is not an isolated incident. This has happened hundreds, if not thousands of times. Can you get us into um, your book and the fact that you think that it is anti-blackness, not anti-gun, that your book is about? And 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 what got me on this this book was in fact the killing of Philando Castile. Um, so here was a black man who followed the NRA guidelines about alerting a police officer uh, once pulled over that there was a licensed concealed gun in the car, which is what Philando Castile did, and for having that weapon, he was shot dead. And then there was the the basic non-response from the NRA, where a man who is legally carrying a gun um, is killed for legally carrying a gun. And the NRA was basically, um, well, there's nothing, we have to wait until the investigation plays out. And I went, wow, wow. And I went hunting because pundits were asking, don't African Americans have Second Amendment rights? And I went to go a answer that question, and I ended up in the 17th century um, during slavery in Virginia, and I saw the fear of black people, the fear of the enslaved, and the fear of free blacks um, in the colonies, and the laws that came in the wake of that fear, the thou shalt not have any guns, any weapons laws. Um, and that, that fear is palpable in terms of uh, walking through in the 
the the convention the constitutional convention um in um the the debates in virginia about ratifying the constitution the the movement for um different elements in the the constitution you see that fear um coming through and that's what i was tracking so i ended up tracking um the basis of the Second Amendment and how that plays out in terms of African Americans' right to bear arms, in terms of their right to a well-regulated militia, and in terms of their right to self-defense. And I track that over time all the way up into the, the, the 21st century. And the story remains the same. And so whether armed or unarmed... Whether armed or unarmed, whites are fearful of blacks? Yes. That, that fear is um, palpable. It is what turns today uh, a black man with a cell phone into to a black man who was shot dead because he had to be armed. Um, it is what leads to um, the kinds of, of language where you know, he was a monster. He was so big. Um, and, you know, and there's, there's, there's uh, studies done that show that black men are looked at as being larger and more aggressive when they are the same size as white men. What's interesting is one of the things I felt from your book was that the fear that white people have about black people is also guilt because black people didn't want to come here. They didn't swim or uh, take a boat over here to the United States. They were kidnapped and brought here in chains. And over the years, when I think black people realized that these were just human beings with a different color, my gosh, did our ancestors make a mistake? I think that there's a lot of that that goes into what you were writing about. Yeah, the, the, that fear was a fear of retribution, a fear that, you know, it's uh, what Thomas Jefferson said, you know, I fear that God is just um, and that what we have done will come back on us. Um, that fear is real. Um, that fear born of the guilt of the brutality that that human bondage requires. Yes, and uh, I want to bring us back to the book by reading um, a couple of quotes that you had in your book. Uh, David A. Graham wrote in The Atlantic that the police killing of two black men, that's Altos Sterling and Philandro Castile, give a strong sense that the Second Amendment does not apply to black Americans the same way it does to white Americans. And Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson wrote that he saw that old Jim Crow, whites only sign plastered above the Second Amendment. The message was loud and clear. Even for the NRA, black people did not have Second Amendment rights. Uh, that goes right to the heart of what you were saying. That goes right to the heart of it. I mean, those were the, the quotes that sent me, that launched me into this study. 
um, do African Americans have Second Amendment rights? Because what we were seeing um, were black men carrying guns and being killed, and and there's no no visible response from the defenders of the Second Amendment, and and the question is why, why, um, particularly when. We had the NRA being very vocal um, at Ruby Ridge and at um, Waco, um, ending up calling the federal officers um, jackbooted thugs who will kill law-abiding citizens. Um, and, and so to have at Ruby Ridge and Waco where federal officers are actually gunned down and and responding to being gunned down as being labeled as jackbooted thugs by the NRA, um, but basic silence on the killing of Philando Castile, it it was just jarring. About so, what's the difference here? It isn't the the possession of the gun; it is who is possessing that gun. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a big problem. I, I don't know um, that it's going to be uh, taken care of or eased quickly. This is something, well, 400 years, the 1619 Project showed that black people were unwillingly brought to this country over 400 years ago. And although John Roberts, in that decision about uh, gutting, the Voting Rights Act said, well, you know, it's working. We don't need it anymore. And then the offset to that was, well, I guess seatbelts aren't needed anymore because they've saved a lot of lives. Right. Um, yes. I mean, the, the, the refusal to acknowledge the role of racism in American society and the toll that it takes on this society is real. I mean, we are wrestling with it right now in the pushback to the 1619 Project, in the pushback to, to talking about critical race theory, in the pushback to talking about structural racism and the way that it, it operates. So you get the, the platitudes like from Lindsey Graham, who said, well, there can't be structural racism because we elected Barack Obama <laughs> and Kamala Harris. Mm, right. <laughs> doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And uh, you also point out about some of the other amendments, uh, and I'm talking about uh, those covering the criminal justice system, the fourth, the fifth, the eighth. They have offered little to no protection for our African Americans because of the numerous Supreme Court decisions that have enabled racism and black profiling into policing, trial procedures, and sentencing. But the Second Amendment's charge for a well-regulated militia and the right of the people to keep and bear arms offers a particularly maddening set of double standards uh, where race is concerned. Yes, I mean, it's here it's that there's nothing you can do with the Second that can provide protection civil rights and human rights protections for African Americans. With those other amendments, what you have to do is to remove the, the racial bias in, in um, juries, remove the racial bias in um, 
illegal search and seizures, search and seizures, um, stop and frisk. But remove the racial bias in the Eighth Amendment. But with the Second Amendment, because it was designed to control and, and to control black people, it was designed to have a militia that could contain the, the so-called threat of a black revolt. Well, that its very w- reason for being was the denial of basic rights. Well, you got to also point out that when the well-regulated militias were created, uh, they eliminated black membership in those militias, even though in some instances the best trained, the best uh, uh, disciplined troops were the black people in those militias. And they eliminated their best people because of this uh, racism that is deeply, deeply rooted in not just those people back then. I think it's deeply rooted in society today. So you say change people. I think it's not just changing the laws or changing the juries. Uh, We have to change everything. This is a country that has a deep-rooted racism and I'll also equate it with misogyny. Uh, yes. Yes. It's a patriarchal, uh, uh, religious uh, origin, our society. you got to change that, it, too. It, it is, it is, um, it is this nasty strain of DNA that courses through our society, and it shapes everything. When you think about... Um, where we live, when you think about employment opportunities, when you think about education, when you think about religion, when you think about politics, um, when you think about sports, um, it's everywhere. And to deny it is to ignore the carbon monoxide that is in the room killing us. Hmm. Well, as you pointed out, Uh, The Commission on Civil Rights reported in 2005 regarding stand-your-ground laws and the racial implications of the law. The criminal justice system is ten times more likely to rule a homicide justifiable if the shooter is white and the victim is black than if an African-American kills someone white and claims self-defense. That's... I, I just... It's hard to understand that. It really, I mean, it is that kind of um, kick, that that shock, that that like dang, (laughs) Um, because it it again it it is predicated on stand your ground. It's predicated on are you fearful? When we have centuries of being fearful of black people, the the language of I was fearful um, becomes um, um, sacrosanct. And the inverse does not hold. So when African-Americans say, I was fearful, they're like, nah, no way. Um, and so when you think about it this way, 
um, when um, police officers broke open the door in Brianna Taylor's apartment, and her her fiance, her boyfriend, shot because he thought that they were being invaded, and and the police officers responded with a hail of bullets, and what he said was, "We were fearful." And they're like, no way. <laughs> um, black people don't have the right to be fearful. Well, I think you've proved it in your book. They do. Because hundreds, if not yes. thousands of black people, unarmed or not, are shot every year by the people they thought were supposed to protect them. That's law enforcement members. Um, so they're the ones... Uh, Black people should be more fearful than white people are, especially those armed law enforcement people. I think that's an excuse. And it it becomes a way to um, that that the the evidence of fear gets overridden by the law. It gets overridden by um, a sense that. The, the, and the tectonics of the law, that blacks are, are dangerous. Blacks are criminals. You know, so when that becomes the motif that keeps coursing through in our discussion, so things about good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods, and you begin to see the visual imagery of who lives there. Um, when you hear the word thug, um, there's a visual imagery that goes with that. And that visual imagery is absolutely essential in the ways that um, the language of fear of black people is deployed. And what that means, the consequences of that are, are intense, um, lethal, in fact. So we've talked about the bad things. Do you have any potential solutions how to make things better? Yeah, and this is this is one of the things in working through this book, you know, going through centuries of 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 these of these case studies. Um, we we have to as a nation we have got to rid ourselves of anti-blackness. And that's going to be hard because there appears to be um, valence or benefits to anti-blackness. And, and those who are holding on to it um, don't want to let it go. But it is dangerous. Um, I think about, for instance, um, how many mass shootings we've had and how it has come to naught uh, when it comes to um, sensible gun safety laws. And the response is, I have to have my gun because the thugs and the drug dealers and the gangbangers will, I need protection, I will be left defenseless. And those key words are coded language, dog whistles for black folk. 
Hmm. Well, it wasn't always like that. Uh, Before civil rights and voting rights acts were passed, allowing people of color more equality in society, the people called thugs were actually uh, members of the mafia and other organizations like that. They weren't necessarily directed at black people. But now mm-hmm. that they're, that black people are trying and in some places succeeding in a full societal equality, there is more fear. And uh, this is what I think is causing what you've just been talking about. So think about when Black Lives Matter was um, protesting in St. Louis and that couple came out of their homes pointing their guns. Hmm at the protesters, and remember, the protesters hadn't gone on the couple's property at all. And that couple gets heralded as the kind of senders, the protectors, and they, you know, they got a special seat um, at the, the Republican National Convention. That embodies the, the language of who has Second Amendment rights <laughs> mm. and who, who has the right to be fearful. Let me take this moment to reintroduce you. You are listening to Politics, A Love Story, and today our guest is Carol Anderson, author of her latest book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Uh, You also pointed out that the Second Amendment is so inherently structurally flawed, so based on black exclusion and debasement that unlike the other amendments, it could never be a pathway to civil and human rights for 47.5 million African Americans. That is the painful answer to Diamond Reynolds' question. Why did you shoot him, sir? Yes. Hmm. Yes. Yes. It, it, you know, there, there's almost like nothing to say after that. Um, the, 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 a black man with a gun or a black man suspected of having a gun or a black woman, woman with a gun or a black woman suspected of having a gun. Um, it is the blackness that is the fear not the gun. And so I look at, think about it this way. Dylan Roof killed yeah. mm. nine people in, a, in Bible study. Mm. When the police arrested him, they arrested him. This was a man who is known to have killed, murdered nine people. Clearly threat. And he was taken alive. <laughs> Yeah, well, we, we've uh, discussed a couple of times so far uh, during this conversation that things are not the same for people of one color or the other. Uh, and this, So when you say we have to get rid of this thing, but are there specific ways to do that? Uh, I think one thing, possibly, is as more people of color uh, are more successful in their lives— 
uh, earn better livings, send their kids to better schools, that it might take away the uh, caste system, uh, which used to be, well, if you let black people buy that house in our neighborhood, they're going to have a dozen people living there and they're going to trash the whole place. Well, now, if you see a successful person of color who keeps the lawn cut, has uh, uh, landscapers take care of the rest of it, we remove one piece of the equation. It may be only a small one, but um, I think that's going to be slow, uh, and it's not going to happen all over. And, um, you know, and that is, is, is not proven out, unfortunately. Um, that... You know, um, Bernice King says, you know, when folks are like, well, pull up your pants and, and take off that hoodie. And she's like, my father was killed wearing a suit. <laughs> the, the thing about the, the aura of respectability is no protection for black people against um, anti-black violence. It, I mean, so I think about, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name, but it was a, a baseball player's son in Houston, a professional baseball player's son who, who came home in a nice neighborhood, um, pulled into the driveway, and the police pulled up. They saw him, and they couldn't figure out why somebody black would be in that neighborhood. Mm. Um, and they are, you know, get on the ground, get me hollering at him. And his mother comes out. And it's 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. It's early morning. And his mother comes out the door in her robe. And the police are hollering at her. She's like, what are you doing with my son? And they um, slam her down. And the son goes to protect his mother, and the son is shot. <laughs> Keeping a nice lawn and, and doing well is not protection against anti-blackness. Uh, I didn't think that was the uh, panacea, but it might be part of the equation. What the other part is, is maybe uh, when police officers go through uh, cadet school, they got to learn about their area. They, they can't just be all about pulling their guns and escalating a situation. I know that in some places they're talking about how to de-escalate a situation, and obviously, there are too many of these stories that you point out in your book, uh, talking about thousands of people who shouldn't even have a gun pulled on them, but yet are killed. Mm. And, and, you know, and work has been done uh, and is still being done on um, different ways to train the police so that um, they learn to de-escalate so that they learn to deal with their biases um, and not immediately see black and see threat. Um, it's, it's, it's a long, hard process. Um, that, um, that, in fact, gets a lot of resistance um, because it is matched up against the rhetoric of law and order rising crime, 
Um, we've got, you know, and it just becomes part of the political language, right? We've got all of this rising crime and you're soft on crime, um, which means you are soft on black folk. Well, we, we got to start somewhere. Uh, in yes, we do. Changing this. And, but here's the thing, like with John Roberts, figuring that something that came about 50 or so years ago is going not needed anymore because it's done its job. But this deeply ingrained bias was from 400 years ago. Something that comes in that deep doesn't get, uh, get eliminated quickly. It takes a long time. Hopefully, it won't take 400 years. But the point is, that's something uh, And in everything that we do. Uh, if it's black, it's no good. If it's white, it's good. And that's talking about in cowboy movies or something else. I mean, <laughs> we don't... We don't think about these things. They're unconsciously in our psyches, and we have to change that. Yes. We, we've got to do the work. We've got to put in the work. Um, we've got to first acknowledge that it's there, and I think that that is why you are seeing such a political uprising against the 1619 Project, um, um, against critical race theory against discussions about structural racism because acknowledging that racism has shaped the United States and continues to shape the United States is playing against a narrative, a political narrative of, of this is a nation born of hard work by our founding fathers who created the greatest democracy on earth. How dare you try to sully that? Um, and, you know, we worked hard to get everything that we have. How dare you say that racism played a role in this? So it becomes a narrative that's, that is cast as a national attack and a narrative that is cast as a personal attack a family attack on, um, on that family's achievement. And what this really is, is, you know, it's like you've got to tell the truth about how we got here so we don't have to stay here so that we can get to a better place, a healthier place. Well, Barack Obama was criticized, and, and I'm using what you just said as a segue to get to this, uh, he pointed out that very successful people in various industries, whether it be trucking or the Internet, they didn't do that all on their own. Th these structural parts of their success, like roads for trucking and the Internet for people who have developed all kinds of programs, uh, it was a joint effort. They took that base and they created something better. Well, it's the same way here. Uh, they, the people who you just pointed out uh, take umbrage at not thinking that they did this all on their own. Well, here's another aspect. Uh, people were talking about, well, if you just uh, pull up your bootstraps, well, what if you don't have shoes? How and and, 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 and the, the language of pull up your bootstraps um, what happens when, as in Tulsa, for instance, were they more than bootstrapped? 
um, they built a thriving black community. And the anger at whites at this thriving black community led to Tulsa being, black Tulsa being destroyed. Um, One of the elements of that destruction, I mean, we see it in the the lynching of Ida B. Wells' friend um, who had a successful grocery store. And the response was that a white man who had the gro- another grocery store was angry that this black man was successfully competing against him. We call that capitalism. Mm. Um, and, and the response was to lynch this black man and his friends for being successful. It, 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 it is when we look at the destruction of black businesses, um, when we look at the destruction of, of black wealth, um, when we look at the efforts to undermine black aspirations and black achievement, and then turn and say, why don't you pick yourself up by your bootstraps? Because we have these structures in place that do everything to to diminish um, the achievements and the accomplishments. And I think of Maya Angelou when she says, and still I rise. Mm. Um, and and it is that, that what is this black person doing here? So it's like the baseball player's son who was shot down. What was he doing there in that nice neighborhood? So let's think about this. Um, mm-hmm. We've, I've mentioned that 400 years is how long uh, that since we started debasing uh, black people. And yet all throughout history, they have participated in helping to protect this nation. Uh, in the revolution, mm-hmm. uh, they were part yeah. of militias. In World War One, there was... Uh, a, a regiment that uh, I think was a lost regiment, or they found the lost regiment. In World War II, uh, there were people of color fighting in regiments, but they weren't integrated into the army as a whole until uh, Harry Truman integrated the services, I guess, in 1947. But yet there were still other things, and here we have still had uh, patriotic and brave black people helping to protect this nation. So my question Mm -hmm. to you is, why do they continue? You know, the Afro-pessimist asked that question. Um, I believe, I think about my father who fought in World War II in a Jim Crow army. And my father believed in democracy. He believed in the aspirations of the United States that it could be better than it really was. Um, And that belief in the aspirations and and being willing to do the work to make this nation better, that's, that's, that's why, that's why you see this, um, this incredible activity. I mean, when you think about this past election 
and the role of African Americans in braving a pandemic that has taken them out disproportionately to be able to vote because of recognition that democracy was on the line. Okay, let's take that to today or to 2022. There were over 360 bills that are going to limit the participation of African Americans at the polls. What's going to happen? What are we all going to do? How are they going to get to vote? And you know, this is you know, when I when I the the other book that I have, I've had several, but one of them is called White Rage. And what White Rage talks about is that for every major advancement of African Americans, you see a massive policy backlash set out to undermine that advancement. The massive turnout of African Americans in the 2020 election and in the 2021 runoff election here in Georgia, where black voter turnout was at 92%. Whoa. Yes. Um, That's what made the difference in flipping the Senate. That black voter turnout at 92% of what it was in the general election in November. And, And the response was not to say, wow, look at this vibrant democracy that we have, where we have so many people engaged, but instead to figure out how to shut it down. And that's what we're looking at with these 360-some bills in over 40 states. It is how do we shut this down. And we're going to do so under the language of protecting democracy, under the language of election integrity. But what we're doing is destroying democracy and destroying election integrity in the process. Well, do you think? And so, how, what do we do? You're going. You're seeing massive mobilization in these grassroots communities um, to overcome, to fight these bills that become laws, but also to to fight to make sure that they don't become laws, that they stay stuck in those state legislatures, and to work with and in those communities to get them to. <laughs> go over, go under, go around, and go through each of the voter suppression techniques that these um, states are putting in place. It's what we saw in Alabama in the 2017 um, special election for Senate, where you had Doug Jones running against Judge Roy Moore. Hmm. And Judge Roy Moore had a whole list of things that made him unsavory, but he looked like he was going to win. That's what the polls said. But you saw massive mobilization among black Alabamians to, in their grassroots organizations to get out the vote, to, to overcome every voter um, suppression technique that Alabama had put in place against that black community. And it was that massive black voter turnout in 2017 that made sure that Judge Roy Moore did not become U.S. Senator Roy Moore. So what you're saying in all this is that this is a possible way forward. If we change uh, the makeup 
of the state legislatures around the country, especially those in the South, but not necessarily just those. Wisconsin is another one that I'm thinking of. We may be able to change things through legal means. If we get people who are thoughtful and uh, really democratic into these positions of being able to create bills that are beneficial to all of us, not just to a limited, narrow-minded group, we may be, may be able to change things going forward. Do you think that is a possible way to go? I think that is a very possible way to go. Um, it Policies matter. The policies we have in place as we have to navigate um, the, the structures of the United States make a difference. Just look at the difference in the way that the pandemic has been handled from the previous regime to the current Biden administration. <laughs> um, the, the previous regime, um, you know, inject yourself with bleach, um, pitting states against each other, um, saying some states, the blue states just need to suffer. Uh, never really having for a vaccine rollout, never really having a plan for uh, providing enough protective gear for health care workers, um, but just basically throwing folks out into, um, out into an ocean where the coronavirus known as JAWS was circling. Um, and, and you juxtapose that to an administration that marshals the resources um, to get enough vaccines um, produced and distributed um, that says this is not a hoax. We take the science seriously. Policies matter. And there were no policies in the previous administration, none that were reasonable, no. Um, the previous administration uh, was a reality TV show <laughs> um, that had these um, two-dimensional cardboard caricatures um, that always insisted on some degree of drama, um, some degree of crisis, um, and that would stoke division in order to stay in power. Well, it was more than that. They were going to overthrow the government to stay in power. Oh, yeah. January. And so let's think about January 6th. I mean, how many times have you heard if that had been um, a, a sea of black people storming the Capitol, it would have been a massacre? Yeah, it would have been the January 6th massacre. Yes, but it wasn't. Um, and I think about Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, who said, look, those were, you know, folks who love law enforcement. Those were folks who love our country. I wasn't afraid. I would have been afraid if it had been Black Lives Matter. Hmm. Except that he ran, just like all the oh, other yeah. members of Congress. Oh, yeah. But, but the, 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 the narrative that he tells now is that I wasn't afraid because these were my people. Hmm. If it had been black people, I would have been afraid. 
Yeah, well, hopefully he'll be gone in 2022. I, I can't imagine that he could retain his seat being as idiotic as he is uh, and untruthful as he is, but that's something else in, in any event. So <laughs> we have put our fingers on a potential way to change things in our country for the better, and that is the, the rights that were gained uh, by uh, the 13th and 14th Amendments, uh, but then were kind of eroded by the Supreme Court decisions and then came back uh, when Johnson had the Voting Rights Act and the uh, uh, Equality Act put forth. And then there were little bits of, of movement forward and then almost as much movement back. So we now have an opportunity to overcome these obstacles that were put more in the way of um, black uh, Americans, African Americans, than they were in the path of white Americans. But there are some uh, that they've done. But if we overcome those obstacles, we may change our country for the betterment of all of us. Yes, and and part of that, a key a key component in that is. Um, dismantling the sense of the U.S. as a zero-sum game, that the only way that blacks can get will be at white's expense. That has been used repeatedly. You know, they're coming into your neighborhood. They're taking our jobs. They're taking our kids' slots in the schools. And that's just not true. That use of the zero-sum game has been um, political, has created political cannon fodder. It's what it has done. Um, it is the way that we deploy our resources um, that can mean that we create a better life for all of us. Well, this has been going on for quite some time. Every, every era when a new ethnic group starts to immigrate to the United States, all those same things are brought up. Oh, they're taking our jobs. They're, they're going to move us out. We're going to be uh, lowered down. Or when after, during World War II, women had to replace the men in the factories, and they did an admirable job, hence Rosie the Riveter. But then after, mm -hmm. uh, they, People, did, or men especially, didn't think that women should be in the workplace. They're going to take the good jobs. They're going to become supervisors. And that's the same thing now uh, about African Americans. Well, they're going, to, they're going to be my boss? Oh, no, I can't do that. Uh, and, and, and that sense of um, replacement or displacement is, again, part of a political ideological ploy that is used to maintain these racial and economic hierarchies. Um, and anti-blackness is key in that. Um, the fear that um, is generated, that is stoked by uh, depictions of black violence, by language, um, noting that, you know, the thugs, the gangs, um, or, or where you hear, well, Chicago and black-on-black -black crime as um, the 
the kind of light motif of what what to be what is to be feared. Um, but what we don't say is that that kind of violence, intra-racial violence, is the most um, common kind. So that. 80%, over 80% of black people are killed by black people. 80% or more of white people are killed by white people. Because most murders are, are, are dealt with by, through proximity. Um, and and the, the, the segregation that we have has led to that proximity. So it's not that black people are more violent. Again, 80% some 80%. It is the way that that gets cast as a narrative to stoke the, the imagery, to stoke the fears of, of black, blacks as dangerous. A big part of your book was about the killing and dismemberment and lynching of black African-Americans by white Americans. We left a lot of that out, and I think that our listening audience might have been appalled had we uh, described those things. Uh, I think for their benefit, we left it out. But there were thousands and thousands of lynchings and slaughters and massacres mm -hmm. of black Americans by white Americans. And yet, here we are talking about the, uh, the discussion by whites about how violent blacks are. No, throughout our history, it was the white people who were the most violent against either Native Americans or uh, black Americans. So how does that equate? Um, that is the, the power of the pen, <laughs> um, the power of being able to, to control the narrative, um, in history books, in, um, in, in the media, um, uh, in political spaces and, and to make that narrative definitive. Um, and, and again, this is why we're seeing so much of the backlash to the 1619 Project, critical race theory, and discussions about structural racism. Um, because when you began to, to interrogate the ways that the United States developed and you began to see the violence that um, it took, um, the violence that was just waged against um, indigenous people as well as African-Americans. It creates a different narrative. I think, and I think that it becomes very difficult for folks who have had the kinds of anemic civics lesson that is, you know, George Washington cannot tell a lie um, when he chopped down the cherry tree. <laughs> mm. um, and when that becomes the civics lesson, then we don't understand the United States of America. We don't understand its strengths, and we don't understand its weaknesses. Um, what we also know is that the, the weaknesses of, of the, the 
endemic racism here has been preyed upon by the U.S.'s um, enemies. Um, you know, the, the Soviets had a field day with Jim Crow. They were oh, like, yeah. oh, my gosh, these folks are so racist. Um, look at Little Rock. Look at Emmett Till. Look at what's happening um, with the Freedom Rides. This is not the leader of the free world. This is the leader of a world where black people are slaughtered. And the Chinese... Is this the world you want to join? The Chinese do the same thing. Anytime we mention the Uyghurs, they start to point out all those same incidents you just did that had been uh, pointed out by the Russians or the, the Soviets before that. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. we have not yes. have we do not have clean hands, but I would say going forward, we're doing a hell of a lot better job than those two countries are. And and I would say that what we need to do is to have a standard of what better looks like that does not have the kinds of killings of of unarmed black people that we have that does not have um, the kinds of of structural lacks of access to health care and quality education so we don't see these differential mortality rates, um, that we actually have a land that invests in all of its people, all of its people. Hmm. That's where we need to be. I just want to go back a little bit to explain how mm-hmm. dire things were here in this country. Uh, you write about Red Summer, an orgy of Ooh. lynching, terror, and racial pogroms that was the early was the nearly nationwide concerted effort in 1919 to beat and burn the very idea of equality right out of African Americans. It had to be done, one man in Mississippi explained, because the government drafted blacks in the army, making them equal to whites. And they weren't and could never be. That was, and I'm not sure that that's totally eliminated from this country, but it was certainly prevalent for many, many years. Yes, um, and it's not eliminated from this country. Um, and that's the problem. And And that sense of, they they didn't know their place. Um, there were what over fifty two lynchings and more than twenty what they called race riots, um, where black communities were just destroyed um, during Red Summer. Um, you saw it in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, you saw it in Washington D.C. In Chicago, Illinois, um, you had a horrific uh, lynching up in Omaha, Nebraska, um, where the man was burned alive. And and I talk about Elaine, Arkansas here. Oh yes, I have that Knoxville, Tennessee, and Elaine, Arkansas. Uh. Yes. And and in Elaine, Arkansas, you had black sharecroppers who were having their wages stolen from them, their labor stolen. And so they decided to organize uh, with a labor union. The, the, the idea that black people believed that they had the right to their own labor and to their wages was anathema. It was appalling um, for the the white leadership in Elaine. 
And when black people went to defend themselves, the slaughter that happened was, I mean, calling in the U.S. Army and the U.S. Army coming in with machine guns. And so I think about that op-ed that Tom Cotton, the current Hmm. senator out of Arkansas, wrote in the New York Times. Um, And this was after um, Lafayette Square, where Trump had called in um, federal forces, and they used all kinds of violence to... to, Clear a pathway um, for him. Clear a path so he could have a photo op holding a Bible upside down in front of a boarded-up church. And and Cotton was like, yeah, you know, you got to call in the military sometimes. you got to call in the Army. Yeah. And I thought, that's really rich coming from the senator from Arkansas, where the Army was called in on black sharecroppers who just wanted their wages. And up to 800 were mowed down. We're coming near the end, and I, I just want to... Um mention a short uh, paragraph uh, that you wrote uh, in the film The Hate You Give. An activist played by Issa Rae encapsulates the problem. It is impossible to be unarmed when your blackness is the weapon that they fear. Yeah. That's a terrible thing. And um, I want to mention again uh, my guest today has been Carol Anderson, her book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. And once again, Carol, I want to thank you so very much for coming on the show, talking about your book that has so much meaning and so much violence, uh, but it needs to be told about. We have to know this and uh, write another book. Uh, I'd be more than happy to invite you back on the show again. <laughs> thank you, Bob. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Carol, and uh, be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been Politics, A Love Story on KZYX. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Politics, A Love Story airs every first and third Friday at 9 a.m., alternating with Byline Mendocino. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. 